The following audio is from Potomac Heights Baptist Church, located in Indian Head, Maryland. More information about Potomac Heights Baptist Church is available at www.phbc.com. Potomac Heights Baptist Church exists to glorify God and to make Christ known to the ends of the world by helping one another become more like Jesus. It is our hope that you will prayerfully listen to this sermon audio. Good morning again. If you have a Bible this morning, I hope you do. Open with me to 1 Samuel chapter 18. 18. I'm actually going to start the reading just a little bit further back into 17 just to draw some transition there, uh, just four verses in 17 into chapter 18. Uh, It's good to have each of you with us today. Thank you so much for coming out and being a part of our worship service today. Um, I've entitled this morning's message, The Green-Eyed Monster. Your neighbor just got a new car, but you're still driving your vintage car. You're not driving it because it's vintage, though. You're driving it because it's all you can afford. Or your best friend starts dating the most popular girl at school. And he doesn't have much time for you anymore. And for you, well, it seems like you can't even get a date if your life depended on it. Your teammate just made the all-conference team in his freshman year. Even though you have better statistics, now in your senior year you've been looked over yet again. Your coworker just got a promotion that you were counting on, even though you've been there twice as long as she has. And when she walks in the room, it seems like everyone notices. You, however, when you walk in the room, it feels like no one cares. What do all these situations have in common? Well, they all have the potential to arouse the ire of the green-eyed monster. Of course, the green-eyed monster is jealousy. We resent the good fortune or success of others, and those feelings drive us toward jealousy. And normally when we think about jealousy, we almost exclusively think about jealousy in negative terms. But when we think about jealousy from a biblical point of view, sometimes jealousy can actually be positive. Sometimes it is negative, but sometimes it's positive. So in a positive sense, for example, we're told that the Lord our God is a jealous God. He doesn't want anybody or anything competing for the worship that He alone deserves. He alone is worthy of our worship. So if we worship someone else or something else, our family, our job, our possessions, sports, academics, whatever you fill in the blank with, if anything becomes more important to us than God Himself, then God gets righteously jealous. It's it's to use a human analogy, it's, It's as if a husband or a wife, if they were to notice their spouse flirting with somebody else or maybe being hit upon by somebody else. Um, I don't know what the the current current, uh, vernacular language is to hit on. When I was a teenager, it was called hitting on somebody. Um, that, That type of behavior might provoke a husband or a wife to jealousy. And generally speaking, that's a good thing because married people shouldn't be flirtatious with other people. We shouldn't do that. Now, I say, by the way, it's generally speaking a good thing because we are all fallen, sinful creatures. 
And while it's generally a good thing for us to be jealous in such circumstances, because we are sinful, we can sometimes react to jealousy in sinful ways. So it's not always a good thing, depending on how the husband or wife responds. But that, of course, doesn't happen with God, because God is holy and righteous. He is without sin. So when God gets jealous, when we read about God being jealous, He's never reacting in a sinful way. So in that sense, jealousy is a good thing. It's a positive attribute. But jealousy, again, can always be a bad or a negative thing as well, a sinful thing. All of the examples that I led off with would be an example of how we might react to jealousy in ungodly ways. In our text this morning, we're going to see yet one other example of sinful jealousy raging its ugly head. So let's turn our attention there to First Samuel chapter 18. If you're there, say amen. I'm going to back up just a few verses to verse 55 just so we can get some context. Um, and I'll make a few comments actually about that last part of 17 and we'll read through the end of chapter 18. As soon as David, excuse me, as soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from striking down the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre. And he did, uh, as he did day by day, Saul had a spear in his hand. And Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, and he went out and came in before them. 
Then Saul said to David, Here is my elder daughter, Merab. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, Let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistine be against him. And David said to Saul, Who am I? And who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? But at the time when Merab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Maholathamite, for a wife. And Saul's daughter, Michael, loved David. And they saw Saul, and the thing pleased him. And Saul thought, Let me give her to him, that she may be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, You shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, Speak to David in private and say, Behold, the king has delight in you, and all his servants love you. Now then, become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke these words in the ears of David. And David said, Does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law, since I am a poor man? And have no reputation. And the servants of Saul told him, Thus and so did David speak. Then Saul said, Thus you shall say say to David, The king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. But before the time expired, David arose and went along with his men and killed 200 Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter, Michael, for a wife. And when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the princes of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your time and for your word. We thank you for your servants of old and for the testimony of your word that you've given us. Lord, I pray that You would use this time now to mold us and shape us, Father. That you would, Your Spirit would accompany the words I'm about to share and that You would allow me to speak that which is truth, that which is good for the upbuilding of Your people. Father, I pray if there is anyone here today, even one who's not trusted in the Lord, that today that You would do Your work in and through them. I pray also, Father, for those who are in Christ today, that you would mature us in Christ today, that you would conform us just a little more, one degree of glory to another, into the image of your Son, Jesus. Lord, I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I have a central, a simple central idea this morning is our God is with us. We see that refrain over and over throughout the uh, passage that, God was with David. And I want you to know that God is also with us. But I have three points I want to make from our text this morning about God being with us. Uh, The first point is I've titled an interlude or unfinished business. 
an interlude or unfinished business. Every now and then, after a sermon, one of you will come and ask me a question or two about the sermon itself or about the sermon text. And for the record, I love it when you come and ask me questions because, number one, it just lets me know that you're listening and that you're tracking and that you're, you're engaging with the sermon. But it also gives me feedback and how I can become then a better communicator of God's Word. And so thank you for your questions. That, that happens at least a couple times a month, somebody will come and ask me questions. But it's a very rare thing when more than one person will come and ask the exact same question. But that happened last week. Um, first, just, just a little background on sermon preparation. Um, unless you want your pastor preaching for three or four hours every Sunday, uh, no pastor ever shares everything of importance uh, from, a, from a particular sermon text. And this is particularly true, or especially true, when we look at a longer passage, as we did last week, where we 58 verses. Uh, to borrow an analogy from filmmaking, uh, there are some scenes that never make it into the finished film. You know, some scenes are left on the editing room floor, and that's true of sermons as well. And so I regularly have to, I'm making, I'm making decisions about what needs to be said uh, to get my main point across to you, the listener, but also what needs to be said so that so that I can be faithful to the author of the text, namely to God himself, and I can communicate that with you. Uh, the questions I got last week from, again, more than one person didn't have anything to do with what I did say, but were rather with what I didn't say uh, last week. And again, those types of questions are, are super helpful to me. Last week, I read from all of chapter 17, but I didn't make any comments from verses 55 and following uh, those last four verses. And scholars debate about whether those last four verses of chapter 17, whether, do they belong to the previous part of 17 or, or are they really a collection? Do they belong to the first five verses of chapter eight, 18? So where do they belong? And I don't intend necessarily to answer that question this morning, but the reason that question is difficult is the Bible that as we know it today with all these chapters and verses, that's not the way the Bible was written. Uh, chapters and verses were added much later to make it easier for us to refer to different parts of the Bible. Um, and so, for, for the most part, the people that added those chapter and verse breaks, they, they did a really good job of saying, you know, this is where a chapter ends and this is where a verse ends. But occasionally, sometimes, a chapter or verse break leads to a little confusion, and that's actually what's happening here in chapter 17 and 18. Um, that's why I've titled this point uh, an interlude or unfinished business. At any rate, what we have in these nine verses, that is the last four of chapter 17 and the first five of chapter 18, these nine verses are not in chronological order. They're not chrono chronology. You know the word I'm trying to say. They don't fit what surrounds them, okay? Now, to prove that point, just look with me at verse 55 for, for a moment of chapter 17. We read there, as soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine. So David, he's still going toward the Philistine. So this would have been before he actually fights with Goliath. But you recall, or you just look there in verse 54, David's already returning with Goliath's head in his hand. So verse 55 has to happen. It must happen much earlier. That, that word again. Um, I don't know. There you go. Thank you. Somebody chronologically. I know how to say that word. I just get tongue tied up here from time to time. Um, in fact, verse 55, it, ha it happens no later than verse 39 or 40, if you were to put it in a, in a time sequence. 
And so what we have in these nine verses, we have, we have this interlude happening. The author is telling us something important about what he's trying to communicate, but he's, if you will, he's stepping outside of time to do that. He's saying, okay, I'm, I've been telling you these things in order and order, but let me step outside of time because I need to tell you some other things. And that leads to some confusion about what's actually happening there at the end of chapter 17. Some people look at those details at the end of chapter 17 and they think, yeah, how could Saul not know this information if David was already playing the lyre for him back in chapter 16? Right? How, how does Saul not know all of this? How could Saul not know who David is? But if we look carefully at the questions that Saul and Abner are asking, they're not asking who David is. They're asking whose son he is. And beloved, that makes all the difference in the world. And the reason he's asking whose son he is is because King Saul has promised earlier in the chapter, we won't go there, but he's promised tax-free living to the family of the man who kills Goliath. And King Saul has also promised his daughter's hand in marriage to the man who kills Goliath. I'll say more about that as we get into chapter 18. So the king, basically, he's wanting to know who's the family that's going to live tax-free. That's really what's happening. Now, some may object still and say, well, didn't Saul send a letter to Jesse also in chapter 16? Doesn't Saul know who Jesse is? Well, yeah, he did send Jesse a letter. But Saul doesn't know Jesse intimately like he knows David. And it's, and it's undoubtedly true that a king would have sent many letters to many different people. It would be like asking a president this, you know, you know, who did you send letters to uh, two months ago? They have no clue how many letters they've sent. It would have been a similar thing here. Now, the fact that he wants to be sure who the tax-free recipient is, so to speak, is no reason for us to wonder why Saul is asking these questions. But that's, that's what's happening there at the end of chapter 17. And then the beginning of chapter 18, in that same interlude, in that same text that's not in chronological order, we read about Jonathan. Jonathan is Saul's son. Beginning of chapter 18, we read about Jonathan's soul being knitted to the soul of David. And Jonathan makes a covenant with David in verse 3. A covenant is a, it's a binding promise. In verse 4, Jonathan gives David his royal robe. He gives him his armor, his sword, his bow, his belt. We're almost left with what else, what else could he have given? I mean, he gives him everything. But what's happening here? Why do we have this bit of information, again, that's not in chronological order? Well, beloved, we're being, we're being set up, but in a very good way. We're being set up to see the contrast. The contrast between how Jonathan loved David and how Saul grew jealous of David. By all rights, Jonathan as Saul's son would have had a right to claim the throne. Just like if you're, if you're a royal watcher, Prince Charles is next in line to the, queen, to the, to the throne of England because Queen Elizabeth is his mom. Jonathan would have had every right to the throne of Israel. But Jonathan isn't the least bit jealous of David. In fact, we see it twice at the end of verse 1, again in, in verse 3, that Jonathan loves David as he loves his own soul. And where genuine love exists, there is no need for sinful jealousy. And during this interlude, during this step outside of time, everything's in harmony right now. Saul sends David out. David is successful. 
David's loved by the people. And this is the way it remains until we get to verse 6. And in verse 6, jealousy rears its ugly head. That's point number 2. Jealousy rears its ugly head. So we're jumping back into time in verse 6. David and the army and King Saul, they're all returning home. They're returning from defeating, notice that, the Philistine. This is, they've, they've just defeated Goliath. And they're returning home, and as is the custom in that day, the women are coming out to meet the men. They're returning, the men are returning from battle, and so the women are playing instruments, they're singing songs. And here's the song they sing. In verse 7, they sing, Saul has struck down his thousands, David his ten thousand. I'm, I'm sure it was a catchy tune. But it's not so much the tune that gets Saul's attention. It's the lyrics that gets his attention. You see, Saul was listening to what the women were singing, and he was, in verse 8, very angry. And it displeased him what they were singing. Now, you might think, well, why, why would Saul get mad? It's not like the women were saying, you know, while David is killing his 10,000, you know, Saul was running with his tail between his legs. That's, I mean, that's not what they're saying. They're saying Saul had, had his thousands. But he's mad because while they're only attributing thousands to him, David, to him, to David, they're attributing 10,000. And that leads Saul in his less than rational mind at this point in his life. You know, what more can they give? To David, other than the kingdom. Now we might think that Saul, you know, Saul, aren't you being a little bit, aren't you being just a bit over dramatic here? But we need to be reminded. We'll see this in just a few verses that the spirit of the Lord has already departed from Saul. Saul is not in his right mind. Saul doesn't have his eyes set on God. For Saul, God is far away. He's not close. God is distant for Saul. And beloved, when we take our eyes off God, it's when we don't realize that He's actually with us. It's during times like that that we're most prone to jealousy. We're told in verse 9 that Saul eyed David from that day on. Let me, let me suggest, beloved, that if Saul had eyed God instead of eyeing David, if Saul had just done that, then Saul probably wouldn't have been as prone to jealousy as he was. Let me share a personal example of, of how this plays out in my own life, okay? In my, particularly in my professional life is what I'm referring to here. Uh, I love listening to good preaching. I really do. I listen to it on a regular basis. It stirs my soul. I have a number of friends, personal friends, um, who are gifted preachers of the Word. They, they're regularly invited. Even They preach at regional, even national conferences. Gifted men. When I think about my own preaching ministry, however, I don't, truth be told, I don't think of myself as a particularly good preacher. Now, don't, don't hear me wrong. I'm not up here complaining, okay? I, I enjoy my work. I work hard at it. Uh, I want to improve any way I can. I read books on preaching. I, I try to be a good student of good preaching. But in the end, frankly, you know, after delivering what I often feel is a subpar sermon, I'm just surprised that you come back week after week. Okay? It is evidence of God's grace in your lives toward me that you would listen to me again. 
And so I have, no, I have no illusion of being invited to preach even at a local conference, much less at a national or regional conference. That's not going to happen. But that's also not why I preach. I don't preach so that people will know my name. So why do I preach? Well, I, number one, I feel compelled to preach. So if I were not preaching here, I would be proclaiming this message somewhere. I feel compelled to do it. But honestly, I preach primarily out of love. Out of two great loves in my life. I preach because I love Jesus. With, with everything that's in my soul, I love Jesus. But I want you to know as well, I preach because I love you. And I mean that genuinely and sincerely. You are my family. I don't come to this church week after week and try to be here week after week because I don't have better things to do. I come here because I love you. I genuinely care about your souls. And so I'm happy. I'm happy for my friends who preach at big conferences. It, it, it doesn't stir in me the slightest bit of jealousy toward them because I know that God is with me here. Right here, right now, He's with me. So I don't need a national audience to be affirmed in my ministry. I don't need a national audience to make me feel like I've arrived. It's enough for me to know that God is with me. And because He's with me, that green-eyed monster of jealousy is kept at bay. At least as far as this example is concerned. I don't mean to imply that I don't ever struggle with jealousy of any kind. I mean, I'm a human being like you are, and so we all, we all struggle in various ways. But in that respect, I'm good. But jealousy can rear its ugly head. That's point number two. Point number three is how not to deal with jealousy. Uh, in the remainder of our text in verses 10 through 30, we're going, we're going to note four different ways that Saul is wrestling with his jealousy. Um, all four of them wrong. All four of them sinful. Not, not one of them even close to honoring God or His creation. And so what I, what I hope us to see here in this is by, by seeing these sinful ways that Saul is wrestling with his own jealousy, I, I hope us to be able to take away a more constructive way of wrestling with our own jealousy. Okay? So four ways. Um, I've put these all in, the, in like a don't category. Number one, don't kill. Don't kill. It should be obvious, right? Don't kill. But it wasn't Saul. In verse 10, we read that the, this harmful spirit of God rushed upon Saul again. It's the same harmful spirit that we read about two weeks ago. We talked about two weeks ago in chapter 16. Now remember, this harmful spirit is from God. So this isn't Satan tempting Saul. This is God at work. I made the argument two weeks ago. I won't repeat it again today. But I made that argument two weeks ago that this harmful spirit is God's discipline on Saul. It's not God punishing Saul. It's His discipline on Saul. And so God is trying to get Saul's attention. It's God working in Saul's life so that, to, so that Saul will ultimately turn himself around to God and give God his direct attention. And as we saw two weeks ago, whenever Saul had this harmful spirit, David is invited to play the lyre to calm Saul's restless spirit. But on this occasion, the lyre isn't having its desired effect. And so while David has the lyre in his hand, Saul has a spear in his hand. And he's intent to pin David to the wall with the spear. To be clear, he doesn't mean like to pin his clothing and so you know, David's you know, stuck and you've seen that in movies where people get stuck. That's, that's, that's not what Saul has in mind. 
Saul has intent to pin David through his body to the wall. It's the same word that's used later um, in, in 1 Samuel. We'll get to it later when, when David has an opportunity to pin uh, Saul to his ground while, David is, while, while Saul is sleeping. It's the same word. Saul tries this not once, but twice. And both times, David is able to evade Saul. And so what's happening here? Well, Saul is jealous over how another image bearer has been gifted by God. And so Saul decides the best way to handle that is then just let's just take that image bearer out of the equation permanently. But how should we as Christians respond when God has gifted others to do extraordinary things that we're not capable of doing? Should we be jealous of them? I argue no, we shouldn't be jealous of them. Rather, we should be grateful for how God shows His glory in other people. We don't need to be jealous. So what if somebody can preach better than me? Praise God for that. Praise God for the Christian church that there are better preachers out there. Praise God for that. No reason for jealousy. So you, you never made the all-conference team, and a freshman does. Praise God for that. That's wonderful news. That God would work in that young man's or young lady's life. Maybe we've taken our eyes off of God, and that's why we're getting jealous. Or maybe we've forgotten that God is with us And that's why we're jealous. Because when we keep our eyes on God, and when we remember that He is with us, then there's no reason to get jealous. You may think, why is that? Because when we understand that the far greater prize is knowing God, and God knowing us, then who really cares about these small things that we get jealous over? I am a child of the King, and He knows me by name. And so, what difference does it make if the whole world knows who I am because I preach at a national conference? It makes no difference. Does God know me better when I do that? No, He doesn't. Saul tried to kill because he was jealous. We need rather to celebrate God's working in the lives of other image bearers. That's that's the first way that Saul tries to deal with his jealousy. Number two, he tries to deal with his jealousy through ignoring it. And so I'm going to say to you, don't ignore. Verse 12, we're reminded here the reason reason why Saul is afraid, in verse 12, is because he recognized the Lord is with David and the Lord has departed from Saul. And because that's happened, Saul tries to ignore his problem. He he figures, let's, let's go out of sight, out of mind. And Saul makes David the commander of a thousand, which means that David's no longer going to be in the regular presence of Saul. David is going to be spending more time with his men, leading his men. But here's the problem. Because Saul hasn't dealt with the root of his jealousy, he's simply ignoring it by putting David out of sight, out of mind. The problem isn't going away And for David, because the Lord is with him, David still has success in everything he's doing. So now, instead of the problem going away, the problem is being magnified. Instead of Saul being at ease with David, now in verse 15, remember in verse verse 12, he's just simply afraid 
But now in verse 15, when Saul sees David having such great success, the text tells us, Saul stood in fearful awe of him. He's gone from being afraid to fearful awe. Because Saul doesn't deal with the root of his problem, jealousy only festers and it grows more malignant in his life. Beloved, it's never a good idea to ignore sin. We think, yeah, I'll just ignore it. It'll go away. That doesn't work. It doesn't work. Sin is an enemy and we need to be mindful of how it attacks. I shared this quote from you from John Owen, but I love this quote. bears repeating often. I'm paraphrasing him here, but Owen wrote, uh, we need to be killing sin or sin will be killing us. In other words, if we're not actively killing our sin, it will be killing us. Ignoring it is not an option. Don't be an ostrich. Don't bury your head in the sand. Deal with your sin. Third, don't conspire. You know, I thought as I was reading this text and thinking about it, it's amazing. It's amazing the unbiblical links that some people will go to deal with their own sin. Saul had promised, you recall back in 17, that whoever defeated the Goliath, the giant Goliath, that person would be given his daughter's hand in marriage. But up to this point, that still hasn't happened. David's already defeated Goliath, but David hasn't been promised a wife yet. And so now Saul sees this as a chance to get at David. In fact, Saul thinks this is a chance not only to get at David, to make it, but also to make it look like he didn't have anything to do with it. This is a conspiracy that's happening. In verse 17, Saul says, Let not my hand be against David, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. This was for Saul plausible deniability. In his mind, he would have been able to say after David's death, that, that sure is, man, I, I sure did like that, David. He was a good guy. I, 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 hate, I, I hate what happened to him. You see, Saul, Saul's plan was for the new king's son-in-law to be valiant for the king and to fight the Lord's battle. And in humility, David was simply in awe that he was going to be the king's son-in-law. He doesn't even suspect that Saul has ulterior motives in wanting David to be his son-in-law. In Saul's mind, the conspiracy is bound to work. I mean, everything's working. It's just like clockwork. Everything is working according to plan until Saul's daughter, Merab, was given to another man to be his wife before she, be, before she could be given to David. And so Saul's first chance at conspiracy comes to an end. Now I thought about how does, how does that conspiracy stuff, how does jealousy turn into conspiracy in our modern world? And I thought of, of a relatively recent um, example. And with the Winter Olympics just wrapping up, some of you might even know where I'm going with this. Um, it doesn't quite, by the way, rise to the level of you know, taking somebody's life. But if you're old enough, who can forget the drama that unfolded in 1994 between Tanya Harding and Nancy Kerrigan? Both of these women were Olympic caliber U.S. figure skaters. But in an effort to support her thirst to win a gold medal at any cost, Harding's ex-husband masterminded an attack against Kerrigan. And her, and her, her ex-husband hired a hitman who used a 21-inch long uh, collapsible baton to strike Kerrigan on her right leg just two days 
before the U.S. Olympic trials. Now, fortunately for Kerrigan, there weren't any bones broken, but the bruising was so significant that she couldn't com- compete in the trials. Why did, why did Harding do that? I mean, Harding had a... She, she had already defeated Kerrigan on a number of occasions. Why did, why did Harding do that? Professional jealousy. She wanted her chief rival taken out of commission. It was that simple. Now, I don't believe Harding ever served any jail time in the whole thing. She might have, but I know she was given a lifetime ban from the sport. Um, now, while I hope that for us as Christians, you know, rising to the level of wanting to kill our rival or to physically harm our rival, I, I hope that's a that's a pretty easy hurdle that we're not going to, you know, we're not going to like get to a point where we want to take somebody out. But I, was, but I want to say, as long as we keep our eyes on God, as long as we realize that He is with us, then we don't need to resort to any type of evil against our rival. Right? Again, if I'm known by the King of Kings, I don't care whether I have a gold medal or no medal around my neck because God is with me. Fourth point. Don't use others. Don't use others. This final example of how Saul tried to deal with his jealousy in my mind is perhaps the worst of them all. I mean, he's already tried to kill David by himself twice, unsuccessfully. He's uh, tried to put him out of sight, out of mind again, unsuccessfully tried a conspiracy, at least the first part of the conspiracy, to kill David, still unsuccessful. Now he's going to use the emotions of his own daughter to carry out the plan. In verse 20, Saul learns that his daughter loves David. And this pleases Saul. But it doesn't please Saul because he's happy for his daughter. I mean, this is not a fairy tale. Saul's not happy that his daughter's finally found the love of her life and la da la da la and everything's going to work. That's not what's happening here. Rather, this pleases Saul because he's realizing that he has a second chance at conspiracy. That he's going to be able to use, in the worst sense of that word, he's going to be able to use his own daughter. He's going to be able to play on her emotions so that he can get what he wants. But this time, instead of telling David that he needs to be valiant and fight the the Lord's battles, this time, Saul uses David's relative poverty against him. This time, Saul tells his servants to tell David that all he has to do to pay the bride price for his daughter is, is not to come up with a lot of money, which would have been common in those days. It would have been common for, for a father to say, you know, this is my daughter and, and, and it's going to cost this much money for her hand in marriage. And then for a king's daughter, then... That much more the price. Saul tells his servants to tell David, you don't have to come up with any money at all. You just need to return with a hundred foreskins from the Philistines. Young people, if you don't understand that, you can talk to your parents after the service. Um, But for the record, that means he needs to kill at least a hundred Philistines. Because the Philistines aren't going to just line up and give their body parts to David. All right, for the record. But we learn in short order that David is pleased. He's like, yeah, he's thinking that that's a bargain. And before time expires, David brings back 200 foreskins. Twice 
the required price. And then Saul gives his daughter in marriage to David and his daughter loves David. Now this, of course, doesn't sit well with Saul. For Saul, his world is falling apart. Jonathan, his own son, loves David. His daughter loves David. All the people of Israel and Judah love David. I mean, David's a pretty popular guy at this point. And now Saul sees and he knows that the Lord is with him. And then look there in verse 28. This leads Saul in verse 29 to become even more afraid of David. Do you see this progression? Everything that Saul has done, he's done in a vain attempt to deal with the sinful jealousy that he has toward David. Everything that he's done, however, has only increased his jealousy and fear of David. Because he wasn't dealing with it in a God-honoring way, because he's a, I can deal with it on my own terms, it's only increased the problem in his own life. If Saul had only realized at the beginning that his focus was off, the whole affair could have been avoided. Had Saul heeded the discipline of the Lord and kept his eyes on the Lord instead of keeping his eyes on David, his jealousy would have been abated. And beloved, that same thing holds true for us today. As we keep our eyes on the Lord, as we remember that He is with us, We grow in comfort. We grow in knowledge. We we recognize that the things that this world has to offer are not all they're cracked up to be. But how can we know that He is with us? I mean, the the Bible tells us that God was with David, that the Spirit of God rushed upon David. How can we know that? How can we be certain that God is with us. Well, the cross of Christ is proof positive that He's with us. It's proof positive that God loves us, that He came and gave Himself for us. When we keep our eyes on the Lord, we recognize that through the cross, through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, we've been given the opportunity to be in relationship with God. Something we don't deserve but something that He's nevertheless granted to us. And what can compare to being in a relationship with God? Does the corner office compare? Does being the most popular person in school compare? Does a 7 or 8 or 9 or whatever your figure is, salary, does that compare? Beloved, I would just say to you that nothing compares to knowing God and being known by God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank You so much for Your grace and kindness to us. And thank You, Father, that You've given us the privilege of knowing You or or of, of being known by You through Your Son, Jesus. Thank You that You loved us even while we were yet sinners and You sent Your Son, Jesus, to die on the cross for us. Lord, I pray that You would help us to keep our eyes focused on You. 
when the temptations of this world that would cause us to to be jealous of others and the notoriety that others receive. Father, help us to rest in the sure and certain confidence that everything we need we can find in our relationship with You. And there are days I know when that's hard. It's hard for me on days. But I pray, Father, I, I know it's the truth nevertheless. I know it's true that You love me and that You sent Your Son to die for me. And so let me rest in that sure and certain truth. Father, I pray if there's anyone here today, anyone who's, who doesn't have the confidence in knowing that You are on their side, that You love them, Lord, that today, perhaps through Your Spirit, Lord, You would awaken in them faith to trust in Jesus. Thank You for Your love and kindness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Close with a passage from the New Testament. Um, speaks about jealousy here. This is Galatians chapter 5, verses 19-24. through 24. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual, immoral, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I've warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But of the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. May the Lord bless you and keep you and have a wonderful, wonderful Sunday afternoon. Stay warm. God bless you. Thank you for taking time to listen to this sermon audio from Potomac Heights Baptist Church. Please feel free to make copies of this audio to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission from Potomac Heights Baptist Church.